This presentation is from UX Australia 2016, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Couple of sessions. Uh, Post-lunch, we're going to talk about, um, in this session in particular, designing financial services for the developing world. Um, billions of people in the developing world, so it's not a small market and it's a huge opportunity. Um, and I'm going to let Gabriel talk about it. So please join me in welcoming to the stage, Gabriel. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. So um, today I want to talk about some work that I've been doing over the last year, um, which has been focused on extending financial services to poor people in developing countries. Um, and I'm going to talk a bit about, at the beginning, of just about getting some context and understanding about the financial lives of the poor, and then talk about some of the projects that I've been working on and some of the lessons that I've learned. Um, I've been focused on design for social impact for a bit over six years now, um, been working all over the place doing that. The projects that I'll be talking about today will be projects that I've done in the last year in Ghana, in Nigeria, in, and in Pakistan and Myanmar. So when we talk about um, extending financial services to the poor, the, the technical jargon term that's used for that is financial inclusion. Um, and that's basically focused on um, extending formal and regulated financial services to the people who haven't had access to them previously. Now, it, just because you don't have much money doesn't mean that you don't have a complex financial life. And in many ways, not having much money means that you have to develop lots of different coping mechanisms and strategies for managing your financial affairs. And there's lots of great research that shows um, the variety of financial instruments that people use to manage both daily cash flows as well as larger expenses. And so one preconception that's um, really important to abandon is that um, poor people live very simple financial lives. And in the context of that, um, the challenges of daily cash flow and large expenses, people have very irregular incomes, typically. So um, the work that I was doing earlier this year with cocoa farmers in Ghana, um, they have two harvests a year, one in October where they get about 75% of their income, one around April where there's 25%, and they have to cope with dealing with their day-to-day -day expenses on an ongoing basis as well as large expenses as they come up through the course of the year with a, an uneven and also sometimes unpredictable income. So there are three sort of useful constructs when thinking about how um, how poor people manage their financial lives. And the first one is just about managing daily cash flows. So that's things like buying food, um, buying fuel to power a stove, um, buying small necessities, um, med medicines, um, clothing, those sorts of things. And there are quite sophisticated mechanisms that people use, both leaning on their social networks, so um, when money isn't available in their pocket, um, leaning on um, their family as well as neighbours for small amounts of money to be returned within a short period. Um, other mechanisms they use is credit at local stores, so they may 
buy most of their food from one particular storeholder, that storeholder will extend credit to them so that they can pay that money back in a week or two weeks. Um, the next challenge that people face is developing larger amounts of capital. So um, there are very often frequent expenses that are larger than people could deal with in their day-to-day, um, in their day-to- through their day-to-day incomes. So, for example, things like school fees come up a few times a year. They're often a difficult expense to deal with. Um, other things are investing capital in their businesses or buying supplies for their businesses. All those sorts of things can be a challenge. And um, there are lots of mechanisms that people use to develop those larger amounts of capital. So one is savings groups. So these are informal groups. Um, Maybe a group of storeholders in a market will get together on a regular basis, or it may be a social group that gets together on a regular basis. And every week, everyone puts in a bit of money. And at the end of the saving cycle, typically like 10 to 12 weeks, everyone gets their money out. And lo and behold, they've saved up a bunch of money. Another, another um, um, thing that you see very commonly is people paying to save money. So there are um, people who run businesses and they'll come to your door every day to collect a small amount of money, maybe 20 cents or 50 cents, and then at the end of the month they'll come back to return to you the money that you've saved minus maybe one day's savings. Um, and the benefit that's provided by this service is that the, that person coming to your home every day provides you with the opportunity to put together a larger amount of capital that you just wouldn't have been able to do by yourself. And so um, where somewhere like here, we'd expect to be paid money to save money, um, earning interest on our savings. People in um, developing countries often will pay money to save money because it's something that they just can't do independently by themselves. And then, of course, there are the large catastrophic expenses. So they're typically health-related, either needing to go to hospital or subsequently needing to pay for funerals, which in many cultures are tremendously expensive. And so you you often see systems um, of social insurance where um, family members would be... Extended family members would be expected to contribute to pay for a funeral. There's loads of fascinating stuff in this whole area. Um, If you're at all interested in learning more about this, I would highly recommend reading this book here, Portfolios of the Poor. Um, It's based on a series of extended diary studies that were carried out in different countries around the world, looking at people's day-to-day financial um, behaviours, as well as um, their attitudes and how they respond to those. It's really accessible and a super interesting read. So, complex... Um, complex financial needs, rich financial lives, but very little access to formal financial services. So um, in Pakistan, 87% of people don't have access to formal financial services. Ghana at 60%, Myanmar 77%. And then once you start to get to the poorer segments of the population, of course, even, an even greater percentage of the population doesn't have access to formal financial services. And um, the... The, the real benefit in delivering those formal financial services to the poor is that they are regulated um, and can, um, can be, can, are more reliable than the services that they might use otherwise. So being able to turn to a formal lending institution rather than, for example, a money lender. And 
By extending um, formal financial services, of course, so once people start transacting using a formal financial service, you're able to extend other financial services to those people, such as loans, such as insurance, which then will help provide them with increased financial stability in their lives that hopefully will allow them to improve their financial situation in the longer term. But in these situations financial institutions are just not accessible. So it's not uncommon to hear in a country where there are maybe 30, 40, 50 million people that a bank will have only a few hundred branches. And those branches are typically in larger towns and most people live in villages outside those towns. So the time to get to a branch and the cost of doing so just makes it prohibitive for people to even get get to a point where there is any kind of financial service. But even if you get there, there are other barriers that make it difficult for people to use those services. So firstly, um, the the banks are often not set up to serve customers who have very little money. Um, It's just not profitable for them to do that. Um, So even if the customer turns up, the bank may not not be ready to service them. And even if the bank is ready to service them, the customer themselves doesn't necessarily feel comfortable in in, in the banking environment, in the branch banking branch environment, just because um, they feel like they don't have enough money, um, they feel embarrassed about the amount of money that they're presenting at the bank, and also that they're they're not the same as the other people in the branch. So in response to this, there's been a great push in many countries with mobile financial services. And um, mobile financial services, for those of you who have not encountered this concept, they're, basic, they're typically offered by telecommunications companies, um, and they provide the customer with an electronic wallet that's linked to their phone number, and they can transact electronically, sending money um, between other people who also hold an account, um, paying bills and whatnot. Um, and things like that. So the, and, and the thing that enables this is that they then have a, a massive network of franchised cash-in and cash-out points. So rather than having bank-owned branches um, in the order of hundreds, they can have 20, 30, 40,000 points of presence that are just little franchise um, shops. Um, so this is an example of one shop that I was in a couple of weeks ago in Myanmar. It's a mobile phone repair shop, um, a little neighbourhood shop that also offers two um, different financial services um, from, two, from two different providers. So they're not tied to any one service provider and they offer their own services in addition to that. Um, and so firstly, this solves the problem of access. So there are many, many thousands of points of presence, so a mobile money agent is not far away. Um, and secondly, it's just much more approachable. It's much, more, much less intimidating to walk into a shop like this to do, your, um, to, to do your transacting rather than to have to go into a bank branch. And technology is, of course, the big enabler for this. So um, being able to have mobile phones in the the, hands of the agents as well as the customer is what enables these service providers basically to outsource their entire infrastructure. 
Um, there's, and there's, there's also, in, in the last few years, just a big push that's um, with smartphones particularly that has um, enabled this to push even further and off offering more sophisticated services on the agent side as well as on the customer side. So it's, it's actually um, not surprising to hear of smartphone penetration rates in countries that are above 50-60%. Um, the work that I was doing in Pakistan earlier this year, I was very surprised to hear that it was 60%. Then you go somewhere like Myanmar, where people have only started using mobile phones in the last few years, and they share a, land, a very porous land border with China. Um, and um, there's 80% smartphone penetration in Myanmar. So smartphones are also now just making a big shift in that as well. So um, with that bit of context, I'd like to talk about some of the things that I've learned in the projects that I've been working on. So the projects have typically been focused on how customers access the financial services through their mobile phones um, and um, some of the things that I've learned from designing services through that channel. So one of, the, one of the first basic challenges that you confront is um, a conceptual one. So firstly, the concept of an account is not necessarily something that people are familiar with. So when you've never encountered financial services before, um, when at best you've maybe left some money with a trusted relative to keep it for you, um, the idea of actually holding an account and what that conceptually means by giving someone money, there's some abstract thing up up in the sky where your money is being held and you can retrieve it at any point that you want is something that people just don't necessarily understand. Um, a lot of the research that I've been doing, people start to relate that to their um, phone balance. So people are typically using prepaid phones, so they have to top up those phones. So the concept of topping up kind of maps conceptually to the concept of an account and often there's a, a sort of a metaphorical leap between those two. Um, then... Even then things like pins. Um, so these people have never encountered passwords. They've never used a debit card or a credit card before. So this idea of having a number that you need to keep secret, that you can't tell anybody else, that um, is what protects your money from being stolen, is again something that is not you can't necessarily take as a given. And then there are other concepts that are just idiosyncratic to, the, to mobile money services. So if I, for example, if I wanted to send money to someone else, but that other person didn't hold an account, I can actually do that with many mobile money services. Um, uh, but what I have to do is I have to generate myself a one-time PIN that I tell the recipient, which they need to then tell the person when they go to cash out um, to, get them to, to go and pick up the money to authenticate that they're the, they're the right person to pick up that money. Um, and we spent a lot of time working with the UI translators um, on the project in Myanmar trying to come up with a way of describing this concept that was somehow intelligible for people who firstly never used financial services before and then also had, had this whole layer of um, security complexity that was laid onto that, that use. Um, and one of the interesting things that came out of that, we tried many different versions. Um, there's a concept in Burmese which is a a secret that is only shared between two people, which was very usefully applied to this situation where we had this, what, I, what I've translated as a mutually, mutually shared secret number. Um, and this idea of this mutually shared secret was a metaphor that um, got people at least most of the way to understanding what, what they needed to do in this situation. Um, and so one of the things that 
I've learned again and again in all these projects is that words really, really matter. Um, and we spend a lot of time noodling on making sure that every word is absolutely right because, because you can't rely on people having any conceptual underpinnings for engaging with financial services, small differences in wording and translation can have a huge impact on people's ability to even understand what's going on with a service. Um, and that's where I've had to lean very heavily on some great translators and also some pretty intensive customer research to try to optimise the wording that's being used because if the wording is wrong, it's just a point of complete failure in using a service. So the next thing I'd like to talk about is how to teach financial concepts through the use of a service. Um, and to do that, I'd just like to talk about something that's not particularly glamorous, but um, I was quite excited about when we were, when we were designing this, which was transaction histories. Um, so transaction histories are complicated. Um, there's a, a, a complex, there's a flow of money in different directions. There's lots of numbers. Um, there's the relationships between those numbers is often not clear. There's a, a chronology involved. There's just lots of information to process and making sense of that can be really important. Uh, and, and it's particularly important when you're trying to troubleshoot something. So there's some problem with what's going on with your money and you want to understand what happened, why and how. Um, and so being able to understand a transaction history in that kind of situation is super important to be able to be somewhat autonomous in using a financial service. So the solution that we came up with here, and a lot of these screens that you'll see are in English, just so that you can understand them, they were actually... In, in this case, they were in Burmese um, when, when they were released to customers. Um, but one of the things that um, we did um, that, we, that we found really successful is help, helping to teach people to read a transaction history by teaching them slowly through time how to read individual transaction records. So what you're seeing here is the screen that you see once you've completed a transaction and the, um, the blue arrow with the two photographs on it is kind of a proto-transaction record. So you just did a transaction, you know what you did, and here's a representation of that to show you. Um, um, here's a representation of that. Similarly, when someone sends me money, so in this case, Ted has just sent me 134,000 chat. Um, I open the app, and on the home screen, I can see a proto-transaction record for that, um, for that thing that just happened. Similarly, I'm just buying Tet some airtime to top up her prepaid. Um, I can see a proto-transaction record for that. So that when it comes to the moment when I need to find out what went wrong, to troubleshoot, um, to troubleshoot um, I'm ready to read this transaction history here, which has lots of transactions in it, and it's quite an overwhelming set of information. And so the, the thing that's... Um, so the big success here was thinking about how the mechanics of the application can be used to help move people up the scale of financial literacy. Um, you'll notice other, th other attributes of the design here that are um, also interesting and helpful for people to understand. Firstly, you'll see that each transaction record is huge. Um, we can only display about three or four records per screen. Um, that was appropriate given the transaction volumes that we're expecting in the service. Um, and then also this strong um, visual um, 
the, the visualization of the transactions using direction and color to help with interpretation. And those things are definitely really important and really helpful for understanding, but it was that process of seeing those through the, um, through the process of using the application that enabled people to successfully understand and engage with um, what they're seeing here. So um, the next thing I'd like to talk about is focus and reassurance. So um, one of the challenges that, that you see um, in designing financial services for, for these kinds of customers is that they, firstly, they don't know what they should be doing, and then, they, then when, even once they've worked out what they should be doing, they don't necessarily know how they should be doing it. Um, and there's a very low level of confidence in their own self-ability to actually um, be able to use a service like this autonomously. So um, one of the things that um, we introduced in the, this work in Myanmar was in the home screen, there were only two features that, you, that were prominent um, on first inspection of the screen. And these are the two most important features that most people would use. You can flick that menu up and it'll um, cover up the rest of the home screen to access all the rest of the features that were provided. But we wanted just to provide the bare minimum to begin. And then once you did begin, um, each screen was dedicated to only one action. So whether it's entering the amount of money that I want to send, um, the secret withdrawal number that I need to create, or choosing the amount of airtime that I want to purchase, it's a, each, each screen is dedicated only to one action. And Additionally, the, um, the help is provided as you do things and is an integral part of that process. So we're seeing here a set of steps that are related to putting in the secret withdrawal number. In this case, because it was an, a novel concept and something that people struggled with, the first step was to explain it. The second step was to let you do it. And then if you hesitated for any period on that second screen, a little toast would appear, which is what you can see in the bottom right-hand corner, that would remind you what it is you need to do here. Um, and we just we saw several times, you can see there's a little help icon up in the top right there. We saw several times that people would refer to the fact that there was help there, but um, they wouldn't actually necessarily summon it. And so building the help into the flow of the task was super important. Um, you'll see a slightly different solution um, to a similar problem for some work that um, I did in Pakistan with another example. Um, and then just constantly reassuring people that what they did the right thing. So you'll see the first screen here is choosing who I want to send the money to. The second screen, how much do I want to send? But at the top, I'm being reassured that the choice that I made on the prior step was the correct one and so on on the subsequent step. And then finally, to... Um, to reassure the, um, the person that it worked. So not only to say, yes, the money was sent, but yes, the money was sent, and here are all the details of what you did. Um, it was one of the things that we saw people doing again and again and again was um, taking what they remembered to be their original balance before they did the transaction. And this was just on paper prototyping, so it wasn't any kind of real system. Um, and it wasn't their own money. But they, would, they remembered the balance that they saw before they started the transaction. They would look at the amount that they just sent and they would reconcile that with the balance, um, the updated balance of the account. And that was a big validation for them that everything was okay. Um, 
One other thing that we, um, that we learned through the course of the research was um, people had sent the money and they were like, did it really send? I'm not 100% sure. Like, it says that it did it, but I'm not sure that it really did it. And that's partly due to um, people's lack of trust of the systems that they're using. Um, that's, and that's partly through their own experience. The um, networks in these environments are not necessarily entirely reliable, and it's not unusual for transactions of many kinds to fail in different ways. Um, and so there's a, there's a pretty low trust factor in terms of technology actually doing the, doing the job right. Um, and then later on in the research, we added the check mark to the recipient's photograph, and that changed everything. Um, immediately, everyone was like, oh, okay, not only has the money sent, but I can see that Ted has clearly received the money that I just sent. Um, and so the, um, those, those sorts of things, to continuously reassure people, make a huge difference to people's perceptions about their own abilities and also their trust of the service. After I do the transaction, I go back to the home screen and you're reminded again that the money was sent and everything we did was okay. And then when I come back to the app a couple of weeks later or a few days later, I'm reminded again of the transaction that I just did um, and that everything went okay. So similar stuff um, with, so this was a design for a um, USSD interface, so designed for feature phones. Um, some work that I was doing in uh, Nigeria earlier this year. Um, here are two versions of confirmation messages post-transaction, so again, sending money. Um, the, the one on the left was early in the, design, early in the research phase, and, and what you're seeing on the right is where we ended up. Um, the one on the left has a fairly abstract word confirmation. The action is kind of buried in the, trans in the transaction details itself, and then you see an updated balance. Um, and where we ended up was basically saying what you did was successful twice. So firstly, a generic, it was successful, um, a much more concrete and specific description of what happened rather than confirmation, and then a description of the action that you just did, the money was sent, and then the details of the transaction. And again, people's perceptions of um, the, their success, so their confidence in them actually having executed what they wanted to and having done it correctly was significantly different with the second version of the design. Um, one of the things that was just really interesting for me personally um, in terms of a learning experience um, was about just the use of language that people understand and how people perceive that. Um, you'll see on the, the two left side um, screens are two versions of the design that we tested through research. Um, and the, on the right-hand side, you'll see where we ended up. Um, the, the left one is English. The second one is in Pidgin English, which is probably the most widely spoken language in Nigeria, and it's a very common language that's spoken on the street. Um, and the left one was not particularly... Um, was, did, people didn't respond particularly well to that. Again, it's fairly abstract, jargonistic um, message. The second one failed, interestingly. People understand it perfect, understood it perfectly well, um, but they felt like it was inappropriate for a financial service to be talking to them using the language of the street. Um, and they didn't trust it. And actually, a lot of people laughed when they saw this message um, rather than um, nodded with um, appreciation. Um, so where we ended up was um, this, um, this message on the right. 
Um, it didn't work, not enough money. And it, and it was just interesting to see how the use of language, you know, especially working in an environment where English is a dominant language, um, how a very sort of um, a, a basic, specific, concrete kind of English language um, was really effective in communicating the concepts. One other little detail that you'll notice is that we ended up capitalising everything. Um, one of the features that you'll see in many developing countries is that all the signs everywhere are written in caps. Um, you won't in, in when when people write in English. So people aren't co- the the experience of English on the street is um, of capital capitalized letters, and people responded very um, very overwhelmingly in favour of having everything in caps, even though it's slightly less legible in, if you did a reading test. Um, this is an example of some work um, for a mobile money service in Pakistan. Um, And one of the design elements that we introduced into this was the concept of an assistant. Um, And so this assistant was there waiting to help you at any point in the process should you need um, some guidance or um, need some reassurance. So in this case, you're being asked, how much money do you want to send? Um, If you tap on the assistant, the context, um, the screen that you're looking at slides down, and the assistant provides specific advice based on your particular situation. So it's not a generic help screen. It's, you're in the process of sending money, so you're balanced. You've got um, 2,500 rupees sitting there, um, and you could send 2,300 of that plus the 200 fee that you're going to be charged to do that. And actually, as a bonus, we'll explain to you, you know, that thing that you saw with your picture on it, um, that's your balance, and in the future you can refer to that to help understand how much money you can send. And then, the, and then you can return to the task. Um, similarly, on the, the home screen, um, a bunch of generic transactions, um, but you can then summon the assistant, and the assistant knows stuff that you've done recently, people who you've sent money to recently, bills you've paid recently. You're very likely to be wanting to send money to those people again or pay, this, pay that same bill again is there to, is there to help you. And that is an, just another way that um, we helped reassure people um, to provide guidance and and assistance in that process. Another interesting thing that came out about language in this um, was that, again, people had a preference for English, even though Urdu is the most common, commonly spoken language, um, and people wanted to be able to optionally switch the UI into Urdu so they could read it, but then have it in English most of the time. So as a fallback, even though that was the language that they were most comfortable with. I think I've repeated it enough times already, but I will repeat it one more time. It's just um, driving confidence is fundamental. And just going back to the very beginning, um, what I was talking about with people not necessarily being familiar with even the basic concepts that underlie financial services, um, that every moment is a moment for doubt. Um, every, every, Every step that a person takes is a moment where they're not sure what they not sure whether they're doing the right thing they're not sure whether they're going to succeed or fail and even worse they're dealing with their money so their action could be catastrophic um, in terms of their financial situation um, the other the other big thing that I've just seen again and again in many different ways with translation with details of the um, details of the design is that in a, in a really fundamental way, the details of the design are the product. Um, it's it's every, every, every moment in the UI is a, is a moment for doubt and failure. Um, and so where, in a context 
here. We often talk about designing the details to design a delightful experience, to finesse those details so that everything really sings. Um, in the case when, we, um, when I'm designing in these environments, if I don't get every single detail right, the product fails. Um, there's just so many opportunities for things to go wrong, for people to have doubts, for people to be confused, that you have to hammer out every single one of those details, spend a long time working on the words, spend a long time working on the treatments, on the icons, on the visual language. Every little element needs to work together tightly to be able to communicate everything effectively. Thank you so much. Thanks, Gabriel. Uh, questions for Gabriel? Yes. I got a bit excited when I saw the help icon because um, I work for a university and we're currently doing an investigation of what icons resonate best um, to uh, you know, explain concepts to students. A lot of our students are internationals. And when I saw the help icon on your interface, I went, oh, how did you come, like, did you investigate the um, cultural differences and understandings of icons in your designing? Yeah, so um, I think the, the help icon is probably a, a bad example in the case of that design. There was a lot of, like, we, we did look at that a bit. I think there's, in the context of Myanmar, um, you're referring to the help icon, which was the question mark? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So um, there's, it's, it's interesting, in the context of, Myanmar, firstly, they're using Chinese phones that have either Chinese or English UIs on them, um, and then occasionally installing um, apps that are in Burmese on them. So their experience, overall phone experience is of a Chinese or English UI. Um, and so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of learning that happens in terms of what, um, what, the, what the metaphors and paradigms are. Um, so we didn't try to reinvent the generic paradigms that are used across other apps that they're using because that's an experience that they're used to. Um, what we did focus on is the, um, very tightly on, is the design of the everything that was related to financial services. So things related to transferring money, finding a shop, um, the status of transactions, that was our opportunity because that was a new, a new space for learning for the respondents. Thanks so much for the talk. That was really interesting. Um, given that you talked a lot about um, people in a lot of these places that are in very remote communities and would have a very low financial literacy, what's the actual process behind once you design all that and you get that all um, rolling, what is the actual rollout? Do you work with local government or local community-based organisations to get that implemented? So most... Um it depends, is, is the answer. So uh, um, most these mobile money services are for-profit businesses um, run by telcos and run by banks. And so there is, you know, there, like I was saying at the beginning, people have pressing financial needs that can be addressed by financial services. And once these services are offered to them, they will often adopt them. So the, the, the very common typical first use case in the rollout of a mobile money service is remittances that are going from the city back to the village. So the children have gone to work in the city and they need to get money back to the village. So instead of their parents having to travel um, for a few hours to get to the bank, the money can turn up at their doorstep. Um, so the, ro the, the rollout happens organically. Um, additionally, government can be a big catalyst because the, the, um, 
They have a lot of interest in paying um, social benefits electronically. There are huge cost savings for them. So that, that often is another catalyst for adoption when governments start doing payroll and um, disbursements of, of money electronically. That's another wave of adoption, and particularly um, in Pakistan where there are, um, there's the Benazir Income Support Scheme, I think it's called, um, and there are um, you know, tens of millions of people who are recipients on that, and they recently went digital with that. So that was a huge wave of people people starting to adopt um, mobile financial services. Uh, thanks for that, Gabriel. That's, that, that was really informative. I've got about a thousand um, layout and information architecture questions, which I won't raise here, so I'll be <laughs> calling you about that later. Um, but I wanted to ask about reversibility, because you were talking about confidence, and one, one element of confidence is to be say, oh, I've added an extra zero, I really need to pull that back, or I sent it to the wrong person. Um, did you deal with that, uh, I didn't notice anything that could say um, you could pause this or pull it back or anything like that. So, like you've made a transaction and you realise you just made an error yeah. kind of thing, yeah. So, um, we did actually talk about that a lot and it's a, bit of, it's a bit of a difficult one. So, from a systems point of view, it's perfectly feasible for people to be able to undo transactions and we had discussions with um, the providers about doing that. Um, the challenge in, in that is that there's actually a lot of problems with fraud in um, mobile money services. So I will um, send a message to someone that looks like it comes from a mobile money service to say that you just received X amount of money, and then I'll call you and say, oh, I'm sorry, I just accidentally transferred you some money. Can you send it back to me? Um, and then you'll get the money back, and then... Um, you'll get the money where you never actually transferred the money in the first place. And so opportunities for people to do transactions and then reverse them were actually a big fraud concern um, because it's pretty common to have that problem. So the only way of recovery was to call the call centre and then to go through a formal process of reversing it. So there were a bunch of business reasons why that wasn't a plausible option, unfortunately. So in terms of translations and, and how the process you had to go through to understand intent and the direct translation and something like send, I imagine that would have been an absolute nightmare. Um, how, what was the process for managing that process, that, that, that managing that process of direct translation and, and understanding the intent of... Uh, you had, a, I'm assuming, a baseline uh, language that you are doing most of your work in and then translating. Uh, what was, can you talk about that process? Yeah, yeah. So the... Um, I so the, the, way, the way that um, I've worked in, these, on, on these, in this kind of situation is firstly design in English um, and then review with the client. The environment's typically in English. And then um, working on paper, we'll draw everything on paper in pencil and then work with a translator who will then write on post-it notes and stick post-it notes across all the pieces of paper um, with the translations for everything and then review those in detail and challenge them on every translation decision that they've made to make sure the intent is there. Um, and then once we're happy with that, they will pen in the translations on top of my pencil English and then I'll draw the rest around it. Um, and then once in the field, um, it's really important to work with um, great a great research team that, not, can, that can not only facilitate the research for you and trans, you know, do this, all the simultaneous translation that you need, but then can then help on the, on the fly expose additional suggestions for wordings and then just keep iterating on that. So, you know, the, 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 the delights of working on paper are that you can just keep changing that as you go and having a research team with you that can help push that translation forward so that you're not just sort of stuck with the translation that you began with. 
Hi, I'm Zoe. I'm from PwC. This is, a, I guess, kind of a broader context question because some of the environments that... Uh, well, some of the nations that you've been working in are, are nations which have had problems with corruption in the past. And one of the ways that corruption works best is in kind of the little cracks in the design process and the bits where the, the trains run out and the, the you know, drips and drops that, that go through the cracks. And what you've presented here is something actually quite seamless. So uh, the question that I have for you is, did you get any pushback? Were there people who didn't want you working in this space? Uh, so I, I didn't encounter that from a design point of view, but you're 100% right in terms of the, the systems of... Um, money moving around in these environments. So um, social benefits is a huge one where money needs to pass down through se several people's hands in order to get to the end beneficiary. Um, and that's why um, governments are partly very interested in using electronic surfaces like this where they can get it directly to the beneficiary. Also not because there are fewer opportunities for the money to be taken out along the way down. I haven't seen... I mean, you know, speaking with customers and the end users and agents... Um, I haven't seen any particular resistance to that because they're the ones who are kind of the, the victims of that corruption in many cases. Hi, that was really fascinating. Um, I was, while watching it, trying to imagine what it would be like uh, if Telstra or some Australian uh, telco tried to offer a similar service and hold all my money. And I was terrified, just like all your, your people, and money's not nearly as, as big a problem as it is for a lot of them. Uh, I suppose my question is, if you had a chance... Um, to kind of assess how much of that, that risk and that concern that everybody was, was uh, presenting through your testing through the lens of what if this was a kind of a, a more trustworthy institution or maybe that's a cultural difference and telcos are seen as very trustworthy over there. I'm just interested in comment on that. Yeah, so it was actually the... So the partner with Wave in Myanmar is a, a Norwegian telco called Telenor, um, and they actually have extremely high levels of trust. Um, so it was actually a plus from a customer point of view to be associated with that telco. Um, in, in Myanmar particularly, there's a terrible history with the banks and the government um, messing around with the currency. Uh, and so there's a lot... There's generally, there's very low trust in financial institutions. So I think that um, telcos generally are pretty well-trusted in many of these environments in comparison to other institutions which have sometimes long and slightly dirty histories. Um, so I think that it's, a, it's often an advantage, actually, for a telco to be offering a service like this. Please join me in thanking Gabriel for that talk. Thank you. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.